0: If you would, grab your Bible and turn with me to Galatians 5. While I um, change the wires on myself here. Um, On the Sundays that I preach and lead worship, I get all kinds of wires running down my back and different packs on me and I purposefully did not mute my... um, Preaching mic, and so I was, I was very careful not to go to the restroom um, before the service just in case um, something was left unmuted. Nobody needs to hear that. Um, so uh, we're going to be in Galatians 5 this morning. We are wrapping up a series. Um, on the fruit of the Spirit that we have been in for the last eight weeks. And this is week nine. As Chad mentioned earlier, this series we have talked about over and over again. um, What an encouragement it's been to us uh, personally as we've talked through this series together. As Chad has preached many of these Sundays and some of our other guys here at Grace have had opportunities to preach um, on different outworkings of the fruit of the Spirit. Um, It's interesting when you look at Galatians, Galatians 5, it it doesn't call these fruits of the Spirit, but these nine things are a singular fruit of the Spirit. These are nine aspects of the fruit of the Spirit, and this is not an exhaustive list. As you look through the New Testament, there are many other things that the Spirit brings about in the life of a believer um, that we should strive toward, and so I don't ever want us to look at this list from Galatians 5 as the exhaustive list of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, or the temperament of a follower of Jesus, as Chad mentioned earlier, I, I get to preach on um, the gift of the Spirit that is self control, or the fruit of the Spirit that is self control. And uh, I have to make a disclaimer that um, I don't possess it in its fullness, I don't think any of us do. Um, and sadly, it's really not something I've heard taught on much in the church. However, studying this week, I realized that the New Testament uses the phrase or this term self-control a lot. Um, And we just kind of read past it. I personally read past it in my um, quiet time when I'm in the scriptures. Um, And so this morning, we get to kind of settle and marinate in this idea, um, this fruit that the Spirit offers us of self-control So let me read for us from Galatians 5, and then then we'll move forward. Beginning in verse 1 For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump, and I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In the case of the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Strong language from the apostle. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit. You will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you were led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But... let us also keep in step with the Spirit, and let us not become conceited, provoking one another, or envying one another. As we look at this list in verses 19 through 21 of the sins that Paul says are evident that are working themselves out in the flesh, it's kind of a um, a gobbled mess, chaotic mess of. Things listed here. There's no order to it. Doesn't seem like there's any progression to it. It's just things that are thrown in. And one commentator pointed out that unlike those, the works of the flesh listed in uh, 19 through 21, in verse 22 and 23, we get a nice orderly nine fruit of the Spirit. That are in sets of three. John Stott um, says that that these could be broken down into three sets of three, representing the trinitarian nature of God. We don't want to read too much into that, but it might be helpful in helping you to remember these: love, joy, peace, relate to our relationship with God. Patience, kindness, goodness. Relate to our relationship with one another, with our neighbor, and gentleness, self-control, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control are those aspects of the fruit that have to do with self. So in these, we have this representation of God, others, and self, how we relate to one another through the Spirit. Our culture loves self-hyphenated words. From self help sections of bookstores to the self love mantra that now emanates from Hollywood and many elites, we are a people bent toward self. Here are just a few of the self hyphenated words uh, thrown around in our modern vernacular. Probably the most popular would be self esteem, then there's self respect. Self sufficient, self absorbed, self centered, self love, self affirmation, self confident, self regard, and on and on the list goes. We like self hyphenated words. But there is one self hyphenated word that our culture wants nothing to do with. Yet I will argue this morning that our culture desires the most, and that is self control. Just up front, uh, Ed Welch, who is a biblical counselor and professor at Westminster Theological Seminary, has written extensively on the subject of self-control, and he's one of the only ones I could find who's written extensively on the subject of self-control. And so this morning, much of what I'm going to read uh, and preach to you has has been gleaned from his uh, wisdom and um, knowledge on the subject of self-control in his article in the journal biblical counseling he says the quest for self-indulgence is inevitably coupled with the dream for self-control the one desire tends to be stronger than the other How, how do we know this if you look at any magazine in america these same magazines that promote sexual freedom are the ones that offer five steps to lose 10 pounds and how not to become overtaken by unruly emotions The United States may be the first country to outdo the rest of the world in both obesity, which is licentiousness, and exercise self-discipline simultaneously. According to Welch, even among evangelical Christians, self-control is kind of suspect. Let go and let God is still a motto by which many of us live. Our sense is that if change feels like self-effort and hard work, then it's probably legalistic. And not animated by the Holy Spirit. Self-control, of course, can feel like hard work. But given the prevalence of drug and alcohol abuse, internet pornography, bulimia, and a host of other out-of-control experiences, we would be wise to revisit the biblical teaching on self-control. I would argue that self-control is at the core of what it means to be human and therefore lays at the heart of the gospel. In Acts 24, we have an account where Felix calls Paul before him to testify about the things that Paul is preaching says in Acts 24, verse 24, after some days Felix was Jewish and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. So Paul has been called to come before Felix and testify about this gospel that he is preaching. And right in the middle, Paul includes self-control. He reasons with Felix and his wife about righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. Why would he do this? Possibly because of the Roman culture at the time, which was indulgent in all kinds of sexual practices and drunkenness. Maybe Paul realized what Felix really desired was self-control. That none of the things he was indulging in were living up to his desires. But what I would argue is self-control is actually a great portion of our sanctification. As we grow in Christ's likeness, it is both the Spirit at work in us and us working through self-control to grow into Christ-likeness. And so it it is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian and really what it means to be human. If you look at your worship guide on the back, there is a quote at the top there, which kind of lays a foundation for what we're going to talk about this morning. This was written by Brad Hambrick, a a biblical counselor and pastor. He says, "...the intent of self-control is flourishing, not punishment." The work of the Spirit in self-control is part of God's restoration of humanity to its pre-Genesis 3 design. At the fall, sin corrupted the desires we know as our self. The Spirit empowers progressive restoration to our will being returned to harmony with the principles of God-honoring human flourishing. This is why we should not feel a sense of condemnation based on our need for self-control. God is restoring a good thing in us. As we grow in self-control. And so what he's arguing here is not that, that self-control should should be seen by us as something that's condemning and shaming us for the way we act, but it's hearkening back to who we were before the fall and to what it means to be truly human. It's to be self-controlled. So this morning, I want to discuss three things with you. That is the problem, the promise, and the plan when it comes to self-control. The problem we see in Galatians 5, 16 and 17. I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. So the problem is our sinfulness and our self-control or our, our, um, our flesh that clings onto us. I keep making noises here. Sin can be summarized as I want and I want more. It is a reckless consumer. Our sin can be summarized as I want and I want more. In the Old Testament, we most often see the out-of-control nature of sin expressed in idol worship. We see it all over the Old Testament with the nation of Israel and the nations surrounding them worshiping idols. It's an outward expression of our heart's desire to want more. But as we move into the New Testament, it's not mentioned as much. Idol worship isn't mentioned, but it's not because it's less of a problem. Instead, the New Testament shifts from this outward expression of our sin to the heart behind our sin. The lusts and the desires of our heart. Jesus, uh, in teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, has this famous little passage saying, You have heard it said, but I say to you. And he begins with, You have heard it said you should not commit adultery, but I say to you that he who lusts after a woman in his heart has committed adultery with her already. And so we see Jesus shifting the focus from the outward object of our sin to the inward desire for it. Notice the sins listed here in verses 19 through 21. They are all sins of unchecked desires. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. These are not common in our culture at all. Idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger. It's all unchecked desires. We are out of control. And one of the neglected features of our sin is that we enjoy it. It's something that's not really popular to confess in church, right? We don't like to confess it to ourselves. But let's be honest, Eve didn't spit out the fruit after she ate it. We don't see Eve feel shame until God comes looking for them. And then they run and hide and cover themselves. It's the same for us. It's self-evident. We continue to indulge in things that are destructive to ourselves and to others. We enjoy our sin. That's why we go back to it. Alcoholism is destructive to a life and to families. But the alcoholic still runs to the alcohol. Why? Because he enjoys it. Pornography is destructive to marriages and to relationships. But the pornography addict continues to run to it because he enjoys it, not because it's something that he's ashamed of. We could go on and on with drug addiction, sexual deviance. What is helpful that our sin is enjoyable, though? Why, Why would I say that this is a problem for us when we don't admit that it's enjoyable? It's because pretending that our sin is disgusting to us while it may have a kernel of truth is really just a way to avoid shame. No one wants to actually admit that they like their sin. And so by not admitting that we like it, we avoid the shame. We pretend as though it was a mistake, something that happened once but won't happen again. We convince ourselves that this was a one-off A mistake, not a passionate ongoing relationship. And as James 1 22 says, we deceive ourselves. If we think we don't like our sin, we have no reason to fight it. If we believe that our sin is disgusting to us, then we have no no reason to fight it. And so, first, we must recognize that our sin is enjoyable so that we can begin to fight against it. A second feature of sin that goes along with this is that its pleasures are temporary. Its pleasures are temporary, just as Eve found out when she ate the fruit. It was pleasure for a moment. It tasted good for a moment. And then came guilt and shame and condemnation. They were kicked out of the garden, stripped of a relationship with God. Many of us have bought the lie that one more indulgence will satisfy. Just one more. And while we may experience pleasure for a moment, it will wear off and leave us wanting more. With each indulgence, we find that the high loses its effect and we, want, we find ourselves needing more to experience pleasure. Ephesians four nineteen, Paul speaks to this. He says, they became callous and gave themselves over to promiscuity for the practice of every kind of impurity with a desire for more and more. We see this not in our, only in our own lives, but as we look out at the world around us that there is always one more step that needs to be taken. We see this in the movement of uh, the homosexual community, LGBT rights. What started with just wanting to be recognized and not condemned and shamed became we want marriage. And now it goes further and further to what pronouns you're allowed to use and, and all these different things. Just one more will satisfy. Just One more. But sin's pleasures will always be temporary. They were never meant to satisfy our deepest desires. And Satan knows how to appeal to our deepest desires. He is an expert at tempting us to sin. Again, we see it with Eve. As Satan appeals to her desire to be like God. Has God really said you cannot eat from this tree? Yeah, and if we eat it or touch it, we'll die. And Satan says, no, that's not the case. No, Eve, God doesn't want you to eat from that tree because he knows you'll be like him if you do. Eve loves God. She has a relationship with God. She thinks, oh, to be like God would be wonderful. And so she gives in to her desire that Satan has used to appeal to her to sin against God. Satan meets Jesus in the desert when he's hungry and tired and says, why don't you turn this rock into a loaf of bread? You're hungry. You can do it. You're Jesus. And he knows how to tempt you with your desires. He knows how to get you into situations where you will be tempted. He will put things in front of you to draw your heart toward your sinful desires. But I want to re-read this quote. The intent of self-control is flourishing, not punishment. The work of the spirit in self-control is part of God's restoration of humanity to its pre-Genesis 3 design. At the fall, sin corrupted the desires we know as our self. The spirit empowers progressive restoration to our will being returned to harmony with the principles of God honoring human flourishing. This is why we should not feel a sense of condemnation based on our need for self-control. God is restoring a good thing in us as we grow in self-control. And so as we talk about self-control this morning, we have to change our mindset around self-control. Self-control is not the idea that God doesn't want me to be happy or God does not want me to experience pleasure. It is that God wants you to be who you were created to be, fully and truly human, flourishing under his design for humanity he is our creator he knows what will make us happy and so really the discovery of self-control and the exercise of self-control is an exercise in, in being truly human so the problem is our sin, but the promise we get from God in Galatians five, twenty-two and 23, that the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. It is promised to us. The Spirit empowering progressive restoration to our will being returned to the harmony with the principles of God honoring human flourishing. So, so what is self-control? different ideas about what self-control is and many of them come from a worldly perspective, those that we are taught we're not often looking to the scriptures for our definition of self-control we think about it when we think of dieting plans and workout plans um, maybe internet filters um, maybe not having too many drinks when we're out self-control is not moderation in all things Though it's a popular mantra in our culture, self-control is not moderation in all things. That implies some kind of stoicism in which we rise above our passions. However, the Bible commands passion in our relationship with Jesus and our relationship with others The problem is not that we're passionate pursuers of things. The problem is our passion is misdirected. We are not passionate enough about Christ and the things that he loves. Self-control is not self-dependence. It's not relying on your own willpower. Rather, it's a gift of the Holy Spirit through faith in Christ. And it's side effect. It is a side effect of fearing the lord self control is not self dependence rather it is dependence upon jesus There's a side effect of fearing the lord we find an illustration in Matthew 12:43 through 45 it says when the unclean spirit was gone out of a person it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty and swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the state of that person is worse than the first. So also it will be with this evil generation. See, in self-dependence, we might be able to drive one thing out. But then other things will come in and take its place. We may be able to get over our addiction for food by running to an addiction for working out. Exercising self-control out of a selfish ambition only makes way for another evil to follow. The Bible tells us we will serve a master. If we chase out one, we will run to serve another. Slavish devotion to work instead of adultery. The only master that is not harsh, the only master that is not enslaving is Jesus Christ. So self control is not moderation in all things, it's not self dependence. Self control, most fundamentally, is a gift. Fundamental to the Christian view of self-control is that it is a gift. It is a fruit of the Spirit. And we don't look at a gift and see it as a burden. Unless somebody gives you a puppy for Christmas and you have to potty train it, then maybe it's a burden. (laughs) (laughs) Hamburg, Hamburg writes later, I was, "I was recently struck by the tension represented in the reality that self-control was a fruit of the Spirit, something we can only do by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, is attributed to the self as its means of expression." The Bible gives us a positively connoted, Spirit-empowered, self-hyphenated word. How does this work? It begins with the recognition that the self needs to be controlled rather than liberated. This side of heaven, the desires of the self, if left unrestrained and prioritized, lead to destruction instead of our flourishing. If we say yes to everything we want, life does not go well. The ability to tell oneself no is a virtue that leads to flourishing. It is interesting, this tension that that something that the Spirit empowers within us is also reliant on us expressing it. Self control. The gift, the fruit of the Spirit is self control. Do you feel that tension there? We see this all throughout the New Testament. Paul uses tension language like this when he says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you. We're working alongside the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to make the right choices, to exercise self control. If we say yes to everything we want, life does not go well. The ability to tell ourselves no is a virtue that leads to flourishing. You see this in the sexual revolution that began in the 1960s in America. Enjoy yourself. We should be liberated sexually until we get to 2018 And the rise of the Me Too movement, and now you shouldn't be sexually liberated. Men should control themselves. The world doesn't know what it is to be human. On one end, they want liberation, on the other end, they want people to be self controlled. They're torn. Self-control is is saying no. Self-control is saying no to sinful desires even when it hurts. But the Christian way of self-control is not just say no. The problem with that phrase is the word just. You don't just say no. You say no in a certain way. You say no by faith in the superior power and pleasure of Christ. It's just as ruthless. And it may be just as painful. But the difference between a worldly self-control and a godly self-control is crucial. It comes down to the question of who will get the victory. That's the issue. Will we get the glory or will Christ get the glory when we exercise self-control? If we exercise self-control by faith in Christ, superior power and pleasure, Christ gets the glory. We must fight the desires of the flesh, but not by our own might. Proverbs 21, 31 says, The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. God has given us the power by his spirit to fight against our sin, to say no to our base desires. Victory belongs to him. Self-control is a promise that requires a fight. Promise that requires a fight. Galatians 5, 1 says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore." Christ has made us free. So stand firm against your sin. Fight against your sin so that you can experience the freedom that Christ has purchased for you. We see this principle worked out throughout the Old Testament in God's promise to Israel. He freed the Israelites from slavery and promised them a land. But they didn't get to leave Egypt and just waltz into the land, doing nothing for it. They still had to fight the inhabitants of the land and take hold of the promise that God had given to them. They had to be obedient and trust God to do what he said he would do in the same way he has freed us from our slavery to sin if we are in Christ but we still are called to fight our flesh in order that we might grow into the likeness of Jesus we have to fight and lay hold of the promise Matthew 5:29 it says, "If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. This is the fierceness. This is the fight of self-control. This is what is behind the words of Jesus in Matthew 11:12 that says, "The kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force." So the question this morning is, are you laying hold on the kingdom fiercely? Are you pursuing Jesus in such a way that you are willing to fight your urges towards sin? If we're going to do that, it requires a plan. We have to have a plan. Self-control is not heavenly mind control. As if our will were absent from the equation. We don't get to sit back and say, well, the fruit of the Spirit is self-control, so God will just give it to me. Your will is still part of the equation. In self-control, the new self is being empowered to rule over the old self. We do not get the option to be passive in the fight for self-control. Ephesians 4, 22 through 24 tells us to put off the old self and to put on the new self. And so by the Spirit, our new self is being empowered to overtake the old self and to rule our flesh. This is something that non-Christians don't get. Those who don't follow Christ, those who do not have the Spirit are enslaved to their desires, enslaved to their sinful passions. But we as followers of Jesus actually are empowered by Christ and by his spirit to rule over our sin. This is a great privilege to be able to understand and experience what it means to be truly human. In 1 Peter 2.11, Peter tells us that our sin is waging a war against our souls. No good soldier goes into a battle without a plan. If sin is waging war on us, then we must in turn wage war on our sin. So, in our last point here, I I hope to help you develop a plan to gain self-control in your life and start living by the promise of the Spirit. So, what is our plan? We have to live within boundaries. Have to live within boundaries. Human beings resist boundaries. Maybe you have children. You once were a child. One of the first things kids do when they learn to walk, right, is start opening doors. You'll, you'll see in our kids wing we have those little plastic things on the doorknob to keep kids from escaping Jim Gaffigan the comedian makes a joke about his kids going to the front door and, and trying to get out and he's like you can barely walk you only know us what's your plan but we don't like boundaries we always think there's something on the other side that's calling me there's something better out there. I don't like boundaries. This sin entered the world. We see boundaries as attacks on our freedom. Restrictions on abortion are viewed as an assault on reproductive freedom. We hear this language used all the time. We're in the middle of a political season in which some are claiming that it's immoral for a country to even have borders and boundaries. we don't like them our sin nature wants to be out of control proverbs 25:28 says a man without self control is like a city broken into and left without walls what happens to a city that's broken into and left without walls it is defenseless and it will be plundered by outsiders Boundaries are good for our spiritual life. Without them, we open ourselves up to destruction, to annihilation. So so first, in our plan, we have to establish boundaries. Rebuild the walls that sin has torn down. So if you struggle with food, it may mean eating in public. There should be someone in your life that holds the passwords to your internet accounts and checks them regularly regularly. Sarah and I were in an adoption training class earlier this year as we're getting ready um, to adopt from CPS, and the, one of the discussions that was happening was among the foster parents being trained for foster care. If a kid comes into our house with a cell phone, we're not allowed to take away the phone because that was given to them by their parents or whomever, um, and, and it's not ours. We're not allowed to take that away from them unless we have established rules in our house on how we handle devices. And so if you have children already, and there's already a place in your house where all the devices go when the kids come home or at a certain time of the evening, then that child also has to give their device because it's an established rule of the home. If you have rules on filters and all that kind of stuff on the internet, then that child is subjected to those same rules. And so we ask the question, because we don't have kids yet, What about if we as a couple have full access at any time to one another's devices, which we do? Sarah knows all of my passwords. She can grab my phone, look at it at any time, look at my computer whenever she chooses. And likewise, I can look at her devices whenever I want. And our trainer looked at us like we had three heads. She thought we were crazy. She was like, I would never let my husband invade my privacy like that. And in that moment, I was like, so this is what it feels like to be a Christian. (laughs) Um, We should consider ourselves fragile. And we should have people in our lives that have complete access to our internet accounts and that check them regularly. There have been multitudes of marriages destroyed by secret conversations that happen through Facebook Messenger, through text message, through Snapchat, or email. It starts out as reconnecting with an old friend from high school and then you find yourself talking to them about things that you struggle with in your marriage. Husbands and wives, you should Have full access to your spouse's internet activity. Maybe you need to throw out old reminders of past idolatrous relationships. Maybe you're holding on to notes or letters or emails that you need to get rid of. It could mean you never walk by a bar alone or you never take the first sip of alcohol. You may need to install covenant eyes software on your devices to keep you from looking at sexual material online. You may need to throw out your devices altogether and get a flip phone. This is the fierceness with which we must fight our sin. If social media is causing you to be angry or irritable or looking at Instagram causes jealousy and envy to rise up in your heart, you may need to delete your social media accounts. If you're prone to gossip, you might need to spend less time on the phone in idle conversation. Establishing boundaries is an admission of our own weakness. Walls are built around cities to protect the weak and the vulnerable. Followers of Jesus must be able to admit that we are weak. Establishing boundaries is an admission that we like our sin, but we love Jesus more. While we may find our sin enjoyable, we find Christ all the more enjoyable. And so... We establish boundaries in our lives. So we live within boundaries. We also live publicly. Ed Welch says it's amazing how much self control we can have when people are watching. Most men who hit pornographic sites don't do it when their kids are in the room. We have lots of self control when people are watching us. And we live for a watching world. Our lives are a testimony of the work of Jesus Christ. So what is your life saying to a watching world? We should always consider our lives a public display. Not only that, but we live before the eyes of God. More importantly, we live before the eyes of God. There is nowhere we can go where God is not. We see this in Psalm 139. Where can I go from your presence? David says, if I go to the heights of the heavens or down to the depths of Sheol, even there you are with me. Now this idea can too quickly evoke visions of a heavenly hall monitor or a parent saying, watch yourself, young man, because I have my eye on you. But this isn't the picture that God gives us. Instead, the eyes of God are our hope. The eyes of God are our hope. They are a blessing. When he sees us, it means that he is close. And there is nothing better than to be in the presence of the Lord. So the picture is not that of a heavenly Gestapo. It is of a heaven penetrating earth. God with us. His presence reminds us that we are in his holy presence. In which we can see that sin is a destructive intruder. With the light shining clearly, we can run from sin and death. And we can be imitators of the light. God's presence is our protection. So we live within boundaries, and we live publicly, and we live wisely. What does it mean to live wisely? It means to think. James and Proverbs, the two books most focused on biblical wisdom, call us to biblical thoughtfulness to think. Sin is like static that makes it hard to hear. Some messages get through. Even in our sin, we can remember things like, God will forgive me. He knows how much I struggle with this. But what doesn't get through is wisdom. Wisdom is living a biblically informed life, not being driven by our impulses and our emotions. To live wisely means we understand that our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. And we can't possibly know all that comes out of them. Wisdom is knowing what God hates and choosing to hate those things as well. Wisdom is meditating on God's word that we've received from him. Wisdom recognizes our weakness and our abilities to justify our sin we're really good at justification. Wisdom seeks godly counsel and then submits to it. There's often talk in the church and in church circles and small groups about getting an accountability partner or a group that you meet with or seeking godly counsel. But so many times I see people ask Someone who is more biblically informed than them has lived a longer life with Christ than they have. They ask for advice, they ask for wisdom, and then they don't submit to the wisdom offered. But to live wisely means you seek godly counsel and then you submit to it. Wise people love to have wise people tell them what to do. And they love God telling them what to do. Wise people love to have wise people tell them what to do. And they love God telling them what to do. If you find yourself resisting the counsel of wise and godly people, then you are not yourself wise or acting in a godly manner. We live intergenerationally. Titus 2, 1 through 8 says, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-control, sound in faith and love and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. That's all they get. Apparently, that's the hardest thing for young men. Teach the young women to be self-controlled, submissive to husbands working at home, pure, all these things. Likewise, urge younger men, if they can get self-control, that goes a long way. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching, show integrity and dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. We live intergenerationally. Young people seek wisdom from older people. Older people model what it means to live a self-controlled life. And we live in a new kingdom. We live in a new kingdom. In his letter to the Colossians, Paul, refers, uh, Paul, Paul prefers to refer to Jesus as Christ, the Messiah, the King. This is a strategic choice. He wants to emphasize that Christians have a new citizenship, that we live in a new kingdom with a new ruler. This alone will prepare us in the battle for self-control. Christ abolished the law codes that could condemn. He disarmed the powers that have enslaved you. He brought peace in your heart and planted love for others where love for self alone once invaded everything. Now, Paul says, live life under the banner of the king. Do everything in his name. So we live in a new kingdom, understanding that it's God who rules in our hearts. So the question I ask you this morning is, do you want self-control? Scripture couldn't be any more clear. An essential feature of sin is that it loathes boundaries. It prefers instead to follow its own desires. The consequence of pursuing these desires is that we are unsatisfied, we are deluded, we are enslaved by ungodly passions. In this context, self-control emerges as a blessing from the benevolent triune God. So the question is, do you want self-control? I would ask you to consider the question wisely. Think about it the easy answer is yes of course look at what addiction has done to me but the real answer is usually much more complex you actually want self-control but you want it only in its pill form without personal effort you may want it because you are supposed to want it yes I'm a Christian so I want self-control you want it but not at the cost of saying no forever to something that you love You want it sometimes, you want it tomorrow, you want it, but you're waiting for God first to remove your cravings. You want it simply because it will make life a little easier for you and save you some money. In other words, you want the misery of addiction to be gone, but you don't want the grace of God and the will of God to replace it in other words I don't like the effects of my sins I don't want those anymore but I'm not really passionately pursuing what God wants for my life I'm not really interested in that so there are three things if you want self-control four things that you should remember number one remember the crown if you find that the answer is less than clear than you first thought go back to the basics Do you remember that sin makes you stupid and you can't trust your own thinking? Do you know that God is good and that his gifts are intended to bless us? Do you realize that especially considering how often scripture speaks of self-control, it is possible to get that God actually wants to give it to us? Do you remember the tragedy that has been associated with your sin? Now envision the crown that's mentioned in 1 Corinthians nine twenty-five. Just as a child who can't always appreciate the blessings of obedience to Christ, he receives a piece of candy as inducement. So we are told of lasting crowns that are given to those who pursue obedience to Christ. The crown is not, of course, the real prize. Jesus is. It's only a poor approximation of something much better So with Jesus in view, we pursue self-control. Remember the grace of God. Remember the grace of God. Listen, Scripture never intends us to hear God's commands to us in isolation from the serious contemplation of God's work for us in Christ. Scripture never intends us to hear God's commands to us in isolation from serious contemplation of God's work for Christ for us in Christ. Remember the grace of God Titus 2.11 says, For the grace of God is a bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from lawlessness and to purify himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. This passage takes the task of saying no and surrounds it with Jesus. It is the ever-present grace of Christ that empowers us to say no. Third, remember your humanity. Jesus is the true human. In Christ, we see what it means to truly live, to really be human. Through his death and resurrection, the indwelling of the Spirit, God has empowered us to live as truly human. Reckless self-indulgence and being owned by sinful passions simply are not intended for human beings. And remember Christ is coming. Remember Christ is coming. First Peter 1 Peter 1.13 says, So prepare your minds for action and exercise self-control. Put all your hope in the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. What is the benefit in remembering Christ's return? The benefit is there's a deadline. The war with sin will one day end. That is good news. When there's no end in sight, we are tempted to give up. Remembering Christ's return brings an urgency to the present. At any moment, Christ may return. Don't indulge. Eternity exposes that which is important to us. The advent of someone else into our sin causes us to think twice. Many of us would reconsider our sinful actions if our wife, our children, or maybe our pastors showed up in the room. How much more should we be concerned about the advent of Jesus into our sinful indulgence? Remembering Christ is coming reveals our true identity, that we are citizens of a kingdom in which Christ reigns. Our destiny is that we will be perfect creatures who do not know all things but are sinless. Consider that. We often excuse our addictions by thinking this is just humanness. We can't help it. But true humanness is that we are created to be like Jesus in every way that a creature can be like Jesus. True humanness is being able to say no to ungodly passions even when it hurts. Reckless self-indulgence and being owned by sinful passions are not intended for humans. And lastly, with your plan, go public. Just as we live publicly, we let others know what our plan for self-control is. If you are not willing to tell someone your action plan, then you are not serious about gaining self-control. Telling someone and asking for accountability, going public with your plan to defeat sin, says that you are actually willing to fight the good fight of faith. So let's pursue Jesus together. Let's pursue self-control together. That we can be more and more like him. And know what it is to flourish as true humans. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this gift that you've given us by your spirit. To be self-controlled. To not live according to our passions but to live with the aim of pleasing you and knowing what it is to be your child. Make us more like Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.